Welcome back to Premier Sports Academy guest speaker series brought to you by Sportscraft Source for Sports. All right, we are live. Okay, guys, um, we'll just let it populate. Um, but yeah, so we're back again. Um, episode number five of our series, and today we are joined by Tyler Susi. Um, owner, director of player development for Velo Pitching and general manager of Playball Academy. Um, Ty, if you want, just give the people a little bit of uh, your baseball background. We kind of touched on it a little bit in the description that we posted yesterday, but if you want, just give us your baseball resume. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, I'll start right at the beginning. Um, I grew up uh, locally around here. I'm playing Cambridge Minor Baseball. Um, played Cambridge Minor Ball pretty much until I was I want to say 15, 16, then I decided to go the elite route because um, I saw myself wanting to go down and play in the States. Um, from there, um, I bounced around a couple of different schools. I went to a school in Michigan, um, an NAIA school, um, which really wasn't a good fit for me. So I decided to come home after uh, one semester, actually, because um, I went there halfway through the year, played the season, came back, went to Laurier, um, where uh, I also played with uh, Trevor and a bunch of the guys that he knows from there and then uh, decided, you know, I wanted to go back down to the States. So um, I went down and finished up at Canisius College um, where I played two and a half years, um, had a couple of really good years there as a team, maybe not so much personally. But um, after that, um, I played abroad in Australia for a winter and then uh, I think I in total played four or five years in the IBL, the Intercounty Baseball League here. And yeah, that's when, you know, kind of towards the tail end, I decided, uh, you know, my forte wasn't necessarily playing. It was more so on the coaching side of things. And um, it's been about two and a half years since I started velo pitching. Um, and I've been managing play ball for the last year. And uh, yeah, that's kind of brings you up to date. Awesome. Um, I guess we'll kind of jump right into the, the baseball, baseball background experience something we've been asking everyone that gets on on you know that we've had on so far when you made that transition from playing you know your local double a triple a to elite ball you know what do you remember about that experience in the jump and competition and preparation and things like that um initially it just i was kind of i got into elite ball near the i would say near the front end of when it was really becoming a thing um it didn't really exist too long before i actually started playing it um, so at the time there were fewer teams than there are now. Now it's very, very saturated and the talent's very saturated. Um, so it was a big jump in competition because there was really a core of like, I don't know, six or seven teams at the time, maybe a few more like lower level teams. Um, now it just seems kind of like a, a replacement for AAA baseball. Um, so at the time it was a big jump. Um, you know, I, I struggled a little bit at first because I was 15 years old playing with 17 year olds. Um, they had me playing up a year or two, um, but I kind of found my own towards the tail end of that. Once I my age kind of caught up to the those of my peers and, um, you know, I settled in a little bit and was fortunate enough to have a couple good years and you know earn a scholarship from that. So what uh, what program were you playing with? I was with the Ontario Nationals and uh, it's actually the program that I'm the pitching coordinator for now. Gotcha. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. And, and uh, obviously uh, you talked about that transition from player to coach. Um, we, that's one thing I think in right now uh, we don't have a lot of is younger coaches. 
sort of in our age group, our age demographic, where it's kind of that 25 to 35 range. And yep. um, like, what what really what really clicked to make you think, okay, maybe it's maybe it's a better route for myself to uh, become a coach. Like, were you that guy that was a sponge when you were playing at Canisius and the other programs? Um, no, actually, I would say almost the complete opposite. Um, you know, I, I look back at my playing time and I, I was, I, I was a player that I wouldn't want to coach now. <laughs> um, I was extremely stubborn and I didn't want to listen. And I think ultimately, like, you know, I had a lot of physical attributes that, you know, probably would have translated well into, you know, a professional career, but mentally and from a, you know, willingness to learn standpoint, I, I was way behind, um, you know, I didn't realize that until, you know, probably the last two to three years once I started doing this. Um, so, you know, for me, the, the switch that flipped was like, I, I was just seeing a big gap between where, you know, where I was when I left those programs and where I was coming up through those programs and the actual skill, dedication to your craft that it takes to make the jump to then like the professional ranks and like there was nothing that prepares you for that when i went off to school i was so underprepared it was unbelievable i got out of bed a weekend in my first year week at you know at my first school and i couldn't walk because my legs were that gassed i literally fell over i remember hitting my knees and um like i was just incredibly unprepared and so that's really ultimately like what spurred me to want to make a change um and you know there's not really many other people in our area doing what i'm doing right now at least with the pitching side of things um so you know, that's really what kind of uh, lit the fire and for me and you know kind of flipped the switch over and that's where i you know when i made the decision to stop playing i wanted to help guys you know kind of circumvent the issues that i experienced as a player and that's you know really what it was born from so for you, I mean, I guess, you know, we'll get into velo pitching a little bit and your philosophies and your concepts and your programming, but you talked about what made you think about doing it, but what was the moment for you when you said, okay, I'm, I'm going to do this? What was that like? What, what really, you know, uh, made you pull that trigger? <laughs> um, well, I was actually laying in bed one morning and I was just kind of like scrolling through Instagram. Um, and I actually came across like a, a logo builder app and, uh, I just, I was messing around. I didn't really have much going on. It was like Saturday morning and uh, I just built a logo and I was like, oh, that looks pretty cool. It's pretty similar to the one I use currently, not this one, but our kind of like initial logo. And that, that's really where I just decided, I was like, okay, like I'm gonna just focus solely on pitching. Previously I would do hitting, fielding, um, and kind of, in my opinion, underservice those areas. It wasn't my area of expertise. Um, so I was like, you know, this is what I'm good at and this is what I know. I'm just gonna go for it. And I decided that day, like in bed, that I was going to create a business out of it. Um, and, you know, the rest is history. Like, uh, you know, we're still growing and, you know, we're still very much like in infancy stages. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's really like what kind of made me make the decision. Um, I guess a little bit deeper than just that, like logo builder app, though. Um, it was once again, like that gap in skill between... The current level um so we service a lot of like high school athletes that's kind of like our main clientele so the gap between the level of skill and just the general knowledge that those guys have at that age about what it takes to make it the jump to the next level and what a division one program looks like 
um, relative to what they're currently doing. And it's just, it's a massive, massive gap. Guys are just not ready for it. And that, I experienced that firsthand. And so, you know, that's really where kind of the combination of those two things, they married up and Velo Pitching was born. Yeah, uh, you talked about it before. You kind of touched on it where uh, you kind of said that um, you're one of the only ones doing what you're doing with your programming. And I mean, Ontario has a vast baseball community. So um, if you could just touch on kind of what you mean by that and just what you're doing program wise, that's a lot different than what you see out there and what other programs have to offer to the athletes. Yeah, um, you know, I, I'm definitely not one of a kind. There's, you know, one or two other guys doing what I'm doing as a general kind of term, but um, really we look at the complete athlete. So what I was finding when I was giving one-on-one instruction under my previous format was a guy would come in, you know, I would ask them the question, okay, what are you coming to see me for? Um, I want to throw harder. I want to be more accurate. I want to, you know, uh, work on a breaking ball. Kid's 10 years old. Um, you know, all those kind of like standard responses that any coach that's coaching a facility or giving one-on-one lessons. That's what you get when you, you coach youth athletes. And so, you know, I was basically just following that, that mold because um, that's what's always been done and I wasn't going to change that. But I was just finding like for what people were paying me and the actual amount of sticky, like real development they were getting out of it, it wasn't worth their money and time. Like really, like they're looking for a quick fix and I was trying to give them a quick fix. But the problem is with a quick fix, it's like throwing a patch on a tire. It'll give you some extra mileage, but it's not going to last, you know, for the rest of that car's lifespan or the life of that tire, you know, thinking of that as the, in terms of, you know, the length of that player's career. So, you know, from that, I was like, how do we, how do we possibly like in a one-on-one setting kind of create a way where we're giving guys tangible, like, skills that they will carry with them throughout the rest of their career. Um, And I just really didn't see that in the one-on-one model without having to charge people an arm and a leg, because ultimately, you know, if I've got a guy for two hours, they're paying for two hours of my time and two hours of facility time as well. That's a lot right in in and of itself um, because I, I need to put food on my table at the end of the day. And so I was like, how do we, how do we scale this out? Because I saw the opportunity with, you know, our ability to get guys better. And I was seeing some success in the one-on-one model because that's how I did start. And uh, I was like, well, what if we just move to a small group model? And I was kind of looking into it because I know a lot of other gyms and facilities have moved that direction. And so I started experimenting with it. And that's where things really took off. Guys were getting way better, way faster. Guys were enjoying their sessions much more. I was enjoying coaching the sessions much more. And there's just about as much one-on-one development, one-on-one time in a small session of four to six players as there is in a one-on-one. Because if I'm talking for the entire one-on-one session and, you know, after each pitch saying something, I'm really not doing a great job of coaching. Um, You know, I'm a big advocate for, you know, watching, letting the athlete experience some failure and then, you know, seeing if they make an adjustment, if they make the adjustment, great. If not, then there's my coaching opportunity. Um, so yeah, you know, I found some success with that group model and then we just kind of rolled that out this year. This is really the first off season where we've kind of gone completely to a a small group setting, um, you know, groups of two upwards of 12 players when we're working with teams and we always make sure we have at least two coaches for those, but, um, 
yeah, it just kind of evolved slowly and we, we make changes. Like it seems like almost weekly right now as to how we're rolling out programs. But, um, every time we work with a guy, it always starts with a really thorough assessment. Um, so we look at, you know, how does this guy move? What kind of mobility does he have? What kind of restrictions, um, are present because, you know, if he's restricted, say, you know, getting up overhead into shoulder flexion or he lacks external rotation, you know, I'm not going to put a big heavy ball in that guy's hand. Um, you know, it, it's just, it's going to put him at risk of injury and I'm not doing my due diligence as a coach. Um, and, you know, on the opposite end of things, guys that are hypermobile, we make adjustments for that as well. And, you know, if I'm just doing a one-on-one -on -one session, I'm trying to get guys to make an adjustment and I haven't put them through a mobility-based assessment, I might be trying to get them to make changes that they can't physically make because they have restrictions. So, you know, we really try and look at the full picture. We use a lot of slow motion video for our pitchers. Um, we do, a, you know, probably about two to three hours of assessment prior to working with any guy. And then uh, we write them a program. They come in, they execute it with uh, myself and Graham, who's our other throwing trainer, um, you know, our, our research guy. And uh, then we then we roll out with however many weeks of programming we've got with them. Yeah, that's, so. that's a, you know, I really want to touch on that again for some of our athletes. You know, early earlier this year, Noah launched uh, the high performance pitching program at Premier Sports. And I think a lot of people were taken aback that the very two first two sessions, one was a basic physical eval like you just talked about. And then the other one was mm -hmm. kind of a, a game baseball evaluation. Like, you know, before we got into the intensive training, you know, as you said, there's a there should be a lot of due diligence done in evaluating, you know, your athletes for those reasons you, you discussed. And I think. I think that's something, you know, we, we use a hashtag here, we call it change the culture with yeah, baseball. And that. that's what we're really trying to get people to understand is that, you know, when you come into these programs, this is not going to look the way it has and all the other things that you've done. You know what I mean? Rob Nixon was on a couple of days ago and he said, you should be throwing two months before you step on the mound early in the season. If you're, <laughs> if you're doing your throwing work, right. And I think just getting those points out there, I mean, was that a big shock for some of your athletes in the beginning? Or is that something you're constantly reminding them about? Um, it, it's, it's always a bit of a shock. So it, it's just, it's, it's different, right? It's, it's kind of disruptive to the whole traditional one-on-one -on -one or facility model where, and, you know, coaches are working with guys like that. And when we're writing a program and we want guys to buy into their program and stick to it and, you know, follow it to a T, it requires a lot of self-direction and it requires a lot of understanding. So, you know, that's why we go through a thorough assessment. That's why our first probably depending on the program, like either first two to three sessions or first, you know, potentially like two weeks, if we're working with a larger group, like a team, you know, we're taking it incredibly slow. Um, you know, I always like to, you know, just relate it. Like you got to learn how to crawl before you walk and you got to walk before you run. Um, you know, it, it, we started the snail's pace just because if we jump right into it right away and guys are walking around like chickens with their heads cut off and not quite sure, you know, what's going on. And, you know, sometimes in our first session, we get guys through their warm up in an hour and that's it. Um, they don't even throw a ball in their first session. We just teach them how to warm up well. Um, and you know, that, that's really what it takes. So I, I don't worry too much about what people think of that. That's, that's our approach. And, you know, I obviously heed advice and feedback from our athletes, but um, everyone's received it really well. And, you know, I haven't received too much negative, um, you know, take the negative with the positive, but 
Um, yeah, and that's that's just where we've seen our greatest success is in taking it extremely slow at first. Awesome. Yeah, I, I think on the uh, on that side of things too. I mean, uh, you touched on it earlier, but um, looking at the individualized model and like again, uh, a lot of times when these kids come from the AAA teams or AA teams, whatever all star or organization they're with, I mean, there used to be in a, in a team setting where not a lot of instruction is given based on their actual makeup. I mean, we see kids coming in uh, 10 years old and we've got a kid that's maybe five, six, five, seven, and then you've got a 10 year old that is just over five foot. And yeah. I mean, them through the exact same workout isn't gonna work. Obviously we know that there's, sure. there's restrictions, there's constraints about how they move. And I think, Again, getting us as coaches, getting that message out there that, again, we just focused on the movement side and making uh, allowing our athletes to move in a pattern that suits their bodies. Because at the end of the day, um, obviously, I think I think Ryan would agree with this. And Ty, you can jump in and uh, correct me or offer some insight. But uh, we really need to kind of, like you said before, let these kids find the, find the failure and then us as coaches apply our coaching style, apply our coaching model, and really give them that direction and that path that they can go on. And not every path is going to be the same, but we can try and get to the same point at the end, right? So. Yeah, for sure. And like, you know, I touched on it before, you just hit on it again, like allowing players to experience failure is huge because that's really where they're going to learn. If, you know, say I, I'm in a bullpen session with a guy and he keeps on, you know, say a very common issue, like guys will run balls off to the arm side of the plate and like they just keep on missing that direction. I'm going to let a guy do that for four or five pitches, maybe not four or five, but like two or three and wait to see if he makes an adjustment. And if he doesn't make an adjustment on that, then I'll coach it up. But if I jump in off the first one or after first two and I'm saying, OK, like you just missed arm side there. What are you going to do to adjust? So I, I don't know. Well, then, you know, me telling him what that adjustment is right off the bat really isn't doing him any benefit because I'm not going to be up there in the game with him. You know, um, even if it's a team that I'm coaching, I got to go out and make a mound visit for that. And I only get so many of those. So, you know, we really try and let guys experience as much failure as they can and make their own adjustments. And when they don't, that's where, you know, we have the moments to, to coach them. But, you know, I, I try not, I try to keep my explanations as short as I can because, you know, we are, we, we do have time limits in here, but secondly, you know, if I'm breaking things down and having a 10 minute conversation with a guy in the middle of a session, um, you know, there, there's probably too much information there amongst everything else that's going on for him to actually take that and, you know, make a meaningful adjustment. It's, it's small cues or little tidbits of information that can kind of help them find the right feeling or find the right movement for themselves. Um, sometimes you throw 10 things at the wall until one of them sticks and it's just, okay, you find the one and then you roll with it. Definitely on that side of things too, as we move along with this. Um, so in your programming, uh, we talked about it just before we actually jumped on, uh, the stream here, but, uh, talking about, uh, the weighted ball series and kind of those more, more advanced techniques in how we're training our athletes and our throwing athletes in particular now compared to the old school method of just kind of show and go and then throw. And basically the only real work that we're doing is throwing the baseball. But can you touch on how that's really, how you've taken that and made strides in athletes with that programming? 
Um, yeah, so I would say most guys that we work with throw some sort of weighted ball. And, you know, usually as soon as the term weighted ball comes up, it's kind of like a, I don't want to say red flag, but for lack of a better term, like red flag, like it's just kind of something that piques people's interest. And, you know, a weighted ball doesn't necessarily mean heavy ball. It can also mean lighted ball. It's just a weight of ball that's different than a five ounce baseball, um, whether it be over or under. And the other thing is like, that's where your assessment comes in. You know, we're not going to give a guy that's you know restricted on mobility, super heavy ball and get him to throw it around. Um, you know, guys that are hypermobile, we're not going to give them super light balls either. Um, you know, we use it with most guys, but, you know, we tailor the approach with them and we try and coach them up on how to use the weighted balls in a safe way, because there's definitely a right way and a wrong way to use them. Um, you know, and, you know, we really try and focus on attention to detail with it. Um, you know, we do somewhat put guys in constrained positions when they're throwing them either so that they're kind of isolating a position in their delivery. That's very difficult for them to access or that they have a mobility restriction in, um, and yeah, like we, we, we use them quite often and, you know, they are very, very valuable tools. They just, you know, if, if some kid were to go up and order a set of plyo balls on the internet and then all of a sudden start throwing them that I would say, like, I'm a huge advocate against that. Um, if you're going to use plyos, we use them when, under the supervision of a coach who, you know, knows what they're doing and, and has some experience with them themselves. Um, don't just go out and buy a set of plyos because, you know, you see the guy on Instagram throwing them around at a wall. Um, yeah, I guess for that, um, do you you don't have any of your uh, plyo balls next to you by chance, do you? That just I do. I've got ball uh, questions that come through. Yeah, I've got a ton of them over here. Uh, you want me to grab a few? Yeah, just for some of our yeah, audience, right. there's a few people that are kind of interested. Just give them a give them a show of what that looks like. Hey, Graham, I got them all in bins here. Actually, I'll move. I'm modular here. I can show you guys what we got cooking for setup. Make it a little shaky here for a second. All right. Um, but yeah, basically, this is where we kind of keep all of our equipment, or most of it. Um, so down here, we got our big two, or sorry, two kilogram plyos. Um, so quite heavy, just over two pounds, or sorry, five pounds. Up here, we got our one kilogram plyos, and then they go all the way down to basically super, super light. I think these are. 100 grams um, so significantly lighter than the baseball and yeah so that's what they look like they're basically a rubber sand filled ball um, very durable um, we use the driveline balls just because you know of the durability and they have a warranty on them unlike some of the cheaper ones you can get um, definitely worthwhile but um, yeah that's what they look like and you know they're a very handy tool like especially you know well, at least we just got dumped on with some snow today so guys can't go outside and throw um so if you need to throw at home, you can, you know, find a cement wall or go somewhere and you don't need much space to throw them unlike a baseball. So yeah, they're great for that. They're just versatile tool. And like, uh, definitely, definitely one of the, uh, most, I, I think beneficial tools, because again, like we just talked about, um, it's, it's not always about throwing a baseball, um, and putting guys in, Personally, with our higher performance athletes here are the only ones that I've introduced the actual program to, but yeah. uh, putting them in constraint positions and giving them an understanding of those constraints, I think definitely benefits the athlete. And again, not always overloading, going to an underload situation and making a guy move really fast who has that ability 
or maybe lacks it. So again, just for our viewers, again, uh, like Ty just said, um, it's not necessarily about all these balls being overloaded above what a baseball would be, like uh, the yellow and uh, the gray ball in the driveline series are underloaded to an extent and can really provide some uh, benefits in that way too. Um, so it just, it just again, as coaches, uh, understanding how to use them. So again, parents that are watching this that may be coaches and thinking about going out there, do your research, in my opinion, go out and how you can kind of reaffirm this, but doing your research uh, to really understand what the program is about and understanding that, again, it's not always going to, it doesn't always go back to increasing velocity. And that's, I think, one of the misconceptions with some of the parents and coaches and athletes that I've run through with this, it's not basically just based on increasing your velocity. It's to assist you in different ways as well. Right. So. Yeah. And, and more often than not, kind of like piggybacking off of that with the plyos, like one of the last things we work on is velocity development. Like very few guys will we actually put on a velocity program because most guys in high school just need to get stronger um, yeah. and they'll throw harder as a result of that. And just like learning how their body works a little bit better. You know, so we don't necessarily use the plyos to help guys throw harder. You know, a lot of our guys do end up throwing harder because they get stronger, because they're throwing more often with higher frequency, because they're on a program. Um, but it's not necessarily the plyos on their own. Um, you know, throwing a weighted ball is not going to help you throw harder, especially if you're just going out and throwing a heavy ball. It's like training in the gym. If you're lifting big, heavy weights all the time, heavy weight's going to move slow and you're going to end up moving slow. So you need to kind of have that hybrid between, and that's why the overload, underload balls are really effective because you take that heavy ball, you strengthen up that pattern, you solidify it, and then you use the lighter ball to train the arm to move quickly through that same pattern. And that's really where like having balls that are heavier, lighter than a baseball are, are super handy. And, you know, the other thing is too, like, no one decided when they were making a baseball that five ounces is the perfect optimal weight. It's just like almost like an arbitrarily assigned number. And if you look a lot at a lot of other implements in overhand sports, like say javelin, a football, um, tennis racket, they're all volleyball. They're all heavier than a baseball, but you hear far fewer injuries in those sports in terms of shoulder elbow, which are the two hot ones for pitchers, especially. Um, and that's where, like, if you look at the data behind it, it's actually a lot of the underweight balls and the five ounce ball actually where risk of injury skyrockets because the arm's working that much faster. Um, usually the heavier balls are actually a lot safer because the athlete's moving slower and is a little bit more aware of their positioning. Whereas when they're moving faster, there's a lot less control. Um, you know, uh, there's a lot more room for deviation of arm path and, you know, ball and socket and uh, shoulder and, all kinds of stuff so yeah that's kind of like my two cents and that's usually one of my arguments for the use of weighted balls when i get pushback from parents players coaches whoever it may be well i think that's you know kind of ties your two points together one you know we talked about the understanding the movement of of the athletes and them understanding their own movements and then you talked about utilizing weighted balls because that does slow down the activity so you understand that movement pattern even more right so that when you mm -hmm. apply your actual skill with your baseball, you now understand how your body moves better and you understand better how your arm should move through that position when you're throwing your baseball, right? So bringing those two back together to, you know, improve your pitching capabilities and, and reduce the likelihood and risk of injury. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, it's just like it's another tool 
in the box. Um, not every single guy throws our plows um, because there are exceptions to that, but I would say most guys do. And it's like I said, just kind of like one of the one of the many tools we utilize to to help guys get better. So in terms of, I wanted to move on to kind of like the, the mechanics based um, and how you train your athletes. What's one of the main mechanical deficiencies that you see in somebody that just comes in for the first time? What's one of the, I guess, more common mechanical mistakes that you see in a delivery? Yeah, I mean, every everyone's a little bit different. I would say like probably the, the main thing that I always like to look at first, um, a lot of coaches will look at lower body because it's kind of like a low hanging fruit, something that you can improve fairly easily because you got some big muscles down there and it works a little bit slower than the upper body where in the arms working really quick. Um, so it's kind of like something that, you know, coaches can grab onto and fix really quickly. Whereas I like to look at kind of like what's the hardest longest term thing to fix, Let let's try and work on that. And it's usually arm path. So, you know, guys typically get really, really long um, with their arms, which isn't bad. Like me as a thrower, at least when I was, you know, playing college and, you know, after that, I, I was really long and I was able to throw hard from that position. Um, and, you know, there are guys in the big leagues that get long. Um, nobody throws a ball the same way, but, you know, typically arm path and like looking for efficiencies in that arm path um, is like number one thing. Um, you know, it, it's really hard to generalize and say like, what are the common common issues? I would say, you know, it's, it's very dependent on age as well. Um, I find younger players like, you know, 10, 11, 12, maybe even like 13 U, um, those kids, they just don't rotate well. Um, they're very linear towards their target when they throw um, because that's typically how you're taught, like get your body moving in the direction of the target and like stay on that track and throw the ball. And they just, they have no rotational component to their delivery. And if they do, it's very limited. Um, so I find that's really common with the younger age groups. Older guys, you know, there are there is quite a bit of lower body stuff, like guys flying open early from their with their lower half, um, you know, which then causes their upper body to open up early as well. Um, you know, guys that don't create counter rotation well in their delivery. I would say, like in our high school age, that that's probably one of the other big ones. So, yeah, the and if you have anything like on your end of things, like in your experience, you know if you want to touch on like those, that's just kind of like what I notice as a very general sense. But, you know, if you see anything like, you know, in your facility or at the guys you work with. Yeah, no, I mean, you, you kind of touched on a great point. And I mean, for us here, I, I look at, typically I look at just the overall body movement because we have a lot of immobile guys who yeah. they're at a point now, um, Canada games age, they're 15, 16, 17 years old, and they're turning into POs. So pitching is going to be how they make uh, provincial teams. Pitching is potentially how they would make a uh, collegiate team. So um, I, I have to look at the full body movement. And I think one, one of the main things that I see here locally, again, Ryan, you can jump in on this as well, but I see a lot of kids that just fly open and have really no control or no structural balance when they move down the mound or even just throwing on a flat. It's uh, – a lot of off balance movements, which causes the ball to kind of fly all over the place. And then they're more focused on kind of extending and everybody was always taught that kind of arrow method where it's kind of getting your T position. 
So you've got kids who actually become become really short at the release point, but start extremely long, and that efficiency yeah. in that arm path then becomes uh, pretty pretty horrible in a sense, um, and it kind of takes away from their velocity. But the main thing that I see here locally, again, is just a lot of a lot of flying open and a lot of that trunk just kind of dumping out to the side, and we get a lot of off balance. Um, at that balance point when we're supposed to be blocking with that lead leg. Yeah. And, you know, kind of like to that point, you know, if we were to look at like the strength and conditioning side of things, which, you know, has a huge crossover with pitching, you know, as well as anything, you know, athletically, like, you know, those two things go hand in hand. And that's another big reason why pretty much all of our guys, you know, will throw with us. And then they also train with us. That's why our sessions are, you know, two to two and a half hours long. Um, the vast majority of players like even up through high school just lack so much strength for the most part, but very specifically like anterior and lateral core, which is basically like your ability to control your arm slot and find a consistent release. And like guys are just straight up weak um, when they come and see me for the most part, like even guys that, you know, look like they're filled out they're weak. Um, so we need to get them strong before we can really do anything else. And, you know, adding some core control and adding, you know, some lower body strength does such huge things for the repeatability of a delivery where, and even if a guy doesn't have, okay, like the greatest lower body, upper body mechanics, like mechanically, they're not great. Adding some strength to that is just going to help them make adjustments so much faster than trying to make adjustments with a weak frame. Um, so like I, I take a very like strength conditioning approach to the development of our pitchers and you know we integrate that pretty highly with all of our programs as well but you know I, yeah like guys that fall off to their glove side it's just it's, it's core control like they can't control their body for how fast they're able to move yeah I and mean, you both actually touched on it in different points you talked about that you know the ability to rotate tyler you know that you see with some of the younger kids and noah you talked about the trunk dumping um, when, <clears throat> when Dwayne Ward was here this summer for the Blue Jays camp, uh, myself and Craig Walker from Paradise actually were just having a casual conversation with him. And one of the things that he's become very interested, you know, life after baseball is actually working directly with parents and kids to teach parents to show their kids how to have a proper catch, right? So you're talking yeah. about not understanding how to rotate your body. I mean, everybody has a catch like this. And how many people do you see work on rotation? You don't see anyone turn sideways, you know, catch the ball or rotate to throw the baseball. Everyone learns throwing the baseball in this direction. So it translates into their pitching that they, of course, don't understand how to rotate when they get on the mound because they don't even do it when they're having a catch, right? Yeah, and that's probably one of the biggest things. Like, and I found this personally, like even when I was playing at my highest levels, when I played really good catch and I was really focused during catch play, I was so much better on the mound. Yeah. And I see that in here, guys that play really good catch and are focused during their catch play. They're usually my top performers on the mound because they're dialed into each throw. And when they're dialed in and they're focused, they're more aware of the sensations they're feeling. They're more aware of where their body is in time and space. And those are the guys that have the most repeatable, most effective deliveries. Maybe not are my best mechanical guys, but definitely like some of the top performers on the mound. They're just our best catch players. And uh, yeah, it goes such a long way. Like just the fundamentals of playing catch are something that get overlooked. Even at some of your highest levels, like guys will just go through the motions, they grab the ball and they're good because they're, they've got all the physical ability in the world. But 
you know, that was me like physically gifted, but very low awareness of what my body was actually doing. And it, it was a limiting factor. And so, you know, it's where I address it in here, play good catch. <laughs> yeah. And speaking of just catch play in general, I mean, uh, working, working with guys in the off season and kind of that long toss component, um, we started doing it. We talked to, uh, Trevor again yesterday about it, how he enlightened us to using our facility and using the netting that we have in our facility to our advantage. So again, yeah. um, like, again, the, obviously we know the benefits of long toss and how that can improve, but what makes, what would make a good long toss? Again, there's the difference between going out and getting really long and then kind of ending things right at your max. But what, what, what for you is the key component of a long toss program? Um, yeah, so I, I use long toss as like a very general term. Basically, anytime you're playing catch, like you're long tossing, unless you're keeping it very light, like on a recovery day. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of this is drawn from Alan Jagger's program. I, you know, a lot of like that's pretty much like a Bible when it comes to long toss, uh, at least in my opinion. Um, and so basically, like during your extension phase where you're backing up. I almost like refer to it as just as if you're taking your arm for a walk, like you're, you're still in the phase where like you're, you're, you're loosening up and you're finding your feel for that day. Um, you know, how's that ball leaving your fingers at ball release? What kind of movement do you have? Um, you know, how are you going to adjust for that movement? It's also your opportunity to kind of like work out any kind of kinks like early in your throwing progressions. Um, typically like we do a lot of drill work prior to guys actually going out and throwing a ball. Um, in the in the outfield or doing their long toss um so they're fairly warmed up at that point um so i also really like to let guys just kind of like translate their drill work into their throwing program at that point so i typically don't talk to guys while they're doing their long toss like that's their time to make their adjustments i'm watching just kind of standing back like if i see an opportunity i'll jump in um and yeah we don't like typically put guys in very constrained positions like just take your adjustments during your plyo work and move them into your throwing work. Um, you know, that for me is like the big key with long toss, like a really good long toss session. Guys are feeling out what they're experiencing with their plyos and their drill work and their constrained positions. And then they're taking those into their throwing work. Um, that, and just generally like feeling good after your long toss. Like I'm sure both of you guys have had, you know, more than you can count long toss sessions where, you know, you, you're like, nah, that wasn't a very good throw today. And then other ones where it's like, okay, like, I, you know, I, I made some progress. I felt some stuff out. And like, there's, there's definitely like guys know when they've had a good catch and when they haven't, um, at least if you're paying attention to it. So for me, like, those are the two big things, like, you know, how do you feel afterwards? And then two, like, what kind of adjustments are you trying to make early on as you back up? If it's a max effort, long toss day, let it fly. Like just throw that ball as hard and as far as you possibly can. Um, get it, you know, within a step of your target and you're, you're, you're meeting your, your goal there, but um, yeah, feel good and make some adjustments. Definitely. It, it really, again, I, I like to say to our kids here, letting our arm breathe. And again, just uh, you, you touched on it, Alan Jager and uh, that entire program, that is the Bible for throwers. I, I think it's even translated over into um javelin it's translated it's very translatable oh, yeah. into any 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 throwing athlete really um one of the other things i wanted to bring up with you too was um so typically when do your athletes get on the mound in the off season 
Um, so it really depends on when does their season actually start. So, you know, here, at least with the elite ball side of things, so a lot of our Ontario Nationals guys and then some of the other elite programs, I have pitchers that kind of satellite in and work with us in our higher performance stuff. Um, they go down on spring trips um, in March. So, you know, we need to start getting those guys ramped up to the mound a lot sooner um, versus guys that seasons don't start till May. Um, one of the big things I noticed just in, you know, kind of like being the play, like manager of play ball for a second, teams come in here and it's the second week of January, kids 10 years old, and they're having them throw a 20 to 30 pitch bullpen right away. He's not going to hit a game mound for three, four months yet. Like, what are, what are we really doing? Like, let's, let's teach that kid how to throw, um, before we, you know, teach him how to pitch. Just like, you know, you got to walk before you run. Um, so in terms of like a, a timeline, typically we're looking like to have a guy ready for like, say we're looking at a starter. We want to have him ready at the beginning of season for like a, a 50 pitch count or so, you know, let's call that four potentially, you know, five innings if he's really efficient and dominating. Um, you know, we're going to start him probably six to eight weeks out from season. It, it depends on the individual as well. Like, um, you know, we were working, I was working with a guy um, from the Padres over the off season and it's only his second full year as a pitcher. So he hasn't really accumulated a lot of innings on the mound. Um, and he, uh, he, he's a, you know, convert from a catcher. So, you know, we decided to get him on the mound a little bit sooner than, you know, some of the other guys. So we started him, I think like 10 weeks out, um, if memory serves me correctly, just so and it was really light at first, like maybe 15 pitch, like short box, bullpens, just fastballs, trying to focus on like creating backspin. And um, yeah, so generally speaking, like six to eight weeks out from season when that first week is, is scheduled to start, but everyone's a little bit different and some guys need different things. So, you know, that's why I bring up the example of our, our pro guy there. He started a little sooner. Yeah, that's, uh, we, we've talked about it with a few people now, but that is, it seems to always be the interest is, is getting on the mound, right? And and trying to have people understand the amount of preparation that's required to going in before you you step on the mound, right? I mean, if mm -hmm. if you're on the mound in January and airing it out, I mean, it's it's going to impact your season. Rob Nixon talked about it. He did 113 innings in his last year of college, and then he went right to uh, extended ball when he got drafted by Cleveland, and he threw another 80 uh, 80 innings in that shortened season. He that's said his velo went down to 84, 86. Oh, 100 percent. Right. Because he was, yeah, he was just I would burnt totally out. Expect it to. Yeah. And, you know, guys just like you get on the mound too soon. You're, you're going to burn out like those guys that are, you know, elite level baseball players around here that started the throwing their bullpens in January. Those are going to be the guys that middle of the way, middle, you know, middle of the season. They're they're experiencing arm fatigue and velocity is going down. They're starting to find more barrels um, because their ball doesn't have the same, you know, ride to it or they're just. You know, it's not moving as much as they would typically expect it to. Um, whereas, yeah, maybe you're only out, but we're not trying to extend guys to go throw a CG early in the season. Um, you're going to feel a lot more fresh come playoff time because you're you're accumulating, you're building gradually. And, you know, um, we really try and be cognizant of that in our programming and like building up pitch counts very, very incrementally and, you know, monitoring guys' intensity when they're throwing and, you know, setting on each given day. Like, you know, this is, even though you might feel like you've got more in the tank, this is where you're going to sit. So you're going to try and sit below 80% no matter what. Like, even though you feel like you've got 100% there, 
you're going to stick at 80 just because that's what your program dictates and it's going to set you up for that 100% day to feel even better. So, yeah. And you see it in professional baseball too. I mean, I, I think of some scenarios that just come to mind, but those guys, those workhorse pitchers that are throwing 210, 220 innings in a season, when they get into the playoffs, they're, they're not the same guy anymore, right? I mean, they've lost that little zip on their fastball and they're not running deep into games anymore. There's lots of names we could think of, but you, you see that burnout in some of these pitchers for sure. Well, yeah, and you even look at, like, I, I can't remember who it was a couple of years ago. I think it was one of the Mets pitchers. It was either Syndergaard or it was um, DeGrom. They actually, like, they were, they were in a playoff run, and they shut those guys down because they were monitoring pitch totals and monitoring innings because they're looking at that guy and, you know, yeah, he might help them, you know, win a pennant, but at the same token, they're looking long-term. They're looking out for that guy's health. He's a, he's a rookie pitcher. He's in his first one to two years in the big leagues. He's never pitched, you know, 200 innings before. We're going to try and preserve him, you know, and yeah, okay, we might not win that extra game that he's scheduled to pitch now, but we're going to have him healthy for that much longer in years to come. And so many coaches, so many players just – are so like they have blinders on and they only see this game or this season. Whereas I try and like, like blinders don't exist. Like we're looking at the whole picture here. And, you know, if a showcase, if a tournament doesn't fit a guy's throwing schedule, the recommendation is don't go <laughs> um, like stick to your program and you're going to be so much better off when it's time to perform, when it's time to, be ready for that. Whereas like, if you just focus on what, what's going to benefit you now, benefit you now, um, you, you're, you're going to be doing more harm than good more often than not. And, uh, just, uh, you touched on it. You, so, um, obviously at Velo and Playball Academy, you've worked with obviously um, very young athletes. And then you just talked about working with professional athletes. So, how, how is that as a coach working obviously at the grassroots level and then working with your pro guys and developing programs for them? Yeah. It, well, funny enough, I actually sometimes find it harder to work with younger players because you really have to like challenge yourself as a coach. Um, you know, you've got all these thoughts and like, you know, I've got all this knowledge in my head that I want to spit out, but then you need to find like simple terms to put it in that, you know, you can explain it to a 10 year old. And I think it was like a, I don't know. I'm not much of an academic, at least anymore, but I think it was Albert Einstein said, like, you're never really an expert on something until you can explain it in like one sentence to a 10 year old. And so it, it is hard like to, to explain like the concept of hip shoulder separation to a 10 year old or to explain like arm path and like, it, it's a challenge. So I, I do find it harder at times to work with younger players. Um, you know, at the same time, they're sponges and they learn and that you can see a lot of development in a really short period of time with those young guys versus the older guys where, you know, if we're looking at making an adjustment to an arm path with a 10 year old, sometimes we can make that adjustment in four weeks. Whereas, you know, that adjustment with that guy who's 21, 22, you know, in his first one to two years of pro ball, he's got so much built up muscle memory or like feel of how he throws it's going to take that much longer to break it down and, and, you know, build a new pattern. So um, at the same token, you can get a little bit more complicated and in depth with your explanations with those guys. So, um, you know, that's where knowing your audience and, you know, the background of that player and kind of establishing a relationship prior to doing any coaching is super important in my opinion. Um, Cause everyone's a little bit different. Like we've got a guy in uh, one of our young guns programs um, who 
he's probably he's his IQ is way higher than mine for sure. Um, you know, he he understands like astrophysics and like he he totally like he loves that stuff. And so we can give him like the full in-depth, like complicated explanation, but then, you know, the kid standing beside him, we're going to give him a totally different explanation on the same concept. And so it just really comes down to knowing your players and, you know, what are their backgrounds? What's their, you know, and reading them. Like if you're getting a blank stare from a guy as you're explaining something, you need to adjust on the fly and, you know, simplify that explanation or take a different course of action with it. Um, so yeah, it, you know, there's all those kind of like small I wouldn't call it small challenges, but big challenges within, um, you know, coaching aside from knowing what you're talking about, you need to know how to deliver that information effectively. Yeah. So just sorry. No, no, go ahead. No, no, no. I was just, gonna say, I mean, we see it here, obviously working for me personally. I, I, I feel the same, same way you do. Again, we don't work with, I don't work with uh, pro guys down here, but again, working with our athletes that are 16, 17, 18 years old, I've been on the mound a little longer than our 10, 11, 12 year olds. Um, yeah. I, I think the biggest, uh, you hit on it without actually saying it. It's kind of like the 16, 17, 18 year old guys, you can almost give internal cues to because they understand their body a little more proprioceptively and understand kind of where that arm is. And if you mention to them, yeah, you're going to feel the arm pull when that arm drags through the zone. Um, whereas obviously your 10 year olds, you're externalizing that cue and kind of just keeping it very simple. And again, like you just talked about, you've got a ton of different learners, you've got visual learners. So again, a message, I guess, for our coaches out there, uh, that are watching is to really understand your athletes. And again, if you've got a team over the summer that you're, you've got seven or eight pitchers on it and developing that relationship and understanding how they learn is kind of key as well. Yeah. And you know, like, I think just in general, like, especially in, on the training side of things, but, you know, coaching in general, whether it's in group or, you know, one-on-one -on -one small group stuff, um, the better you can relate to your athletes and the better you can develop a relationship with them, even though like, you know, we, there's a lot of varying skill, like that's half the battle. You've already won if you're able to develop a relationship and rapport. I think back to the coaches that I've played for and, the, the coaches I feel like I've learned the most from were the ones I had the best rapport with, the ones I felt like I could talk to and have an open conversation. And, you know, the ones that I didn't connect with and that, you know, maybe there was friction or just for whatever reason, like we just didn't jive, you know, though I didn't learn in those environments. And so, you know, as coaches, we just like, that's, that's probably even more than half of what we do is just understanding your athletes and, you know, knowing that everyone's different both as learners and, you know, and with physical capabilities and tailoring the athlete's experience towards that is huge. Yeah, I guess that, that was where I was actually just wanting to transition to next. We've talked a little bit about teams and you work with, you're the pitching coach right now with uh, the Nationals that we were saying earlier. Yeah, yeah. Ontario yeah so Nationals. This is something we get a lot uh, when it comes to tryouts and, and evaluating pitchers and assessments. I, I think a lot of people don't appreciate how much time it takes to actually assess and evaluate a pitcher when you're going through a team tryout structure. I mean, can you give a little, you know, shed a little insight on what you're looking for and how much time you want to spend with each pitcher before you can comfortably make a decision on their ability to make a team or not make a team or, or you know, for you to think, yeah, I can make that person better. So, you know, it's someone I do want on the team as an example. Yeah. I mean, so the, I'm, I'm the pitching coordinator for this team, but I don't actually get out on field with them. And this is my first year with them. So 
we still have to see how the summer is going to play out. But I'm more so like on the development side of things just because of my role with Velo Pitching and the facility as well. But at the same token, you know, a lot of what we do is evaluation of pitchers. Some guys, you can see it right away. Um, you know, guys that have late life on their fastball or like good ride through the strike zone. Like, you know, those are guys that are going to spin the ball really well. Um, you know, they can live up and down in the zone. Um, whereas, you know, guys where like, it's just the, the ball, does, like they might throw the same velocity, but like there's just something different about guys that spin the ball well. Like you can see it out of the hand, um, you know. So there's certain things that you can pick up on right away like that. And then other things, you know, you might not see a guy on his best day, you know, say we're in a showcase setting or, um, you know, you're running a tryout and you throw bullpens on the first day and you give that kid 15 pitches, you know, maybe you, you're seeing him after he had, I don't know, maybe he's a track and field guy and he, he was throwing shot put or javelin around yesterday. We don't know that, um, especially meeting these kids for the first time. So, you know, I think it, it really takes it depends on what you're looking at. Like if you're looking at fielding a team, you probably want to see a couple bullpens from that guy um, prior to making a definitive decision as to war, whether, you know, it's a hard yes or a hard no, um, or somebody that you want to take a little bit more of a look at. Um, showcase settings are a little bit different. You know, you got your 15 to 17 pitches and you got to, you know, light up the strike zone or sorry, light up the gun and, you know, live around the strike zone, show some good breaking stuff. Um but uh, yeah, you know, in a team setting, I, I think it takes more than just one session to make a definitive decision, especially at youth levels, because there can be such high variance in performance day to day. Yeah, definitely. And, and kind of moving on to um, just before we begin to wrap up here. So technology, especially on the pitching side of things, has, has changed drastically over the last couple of years, even in yeah, big time. A, it's changing every month, basically. But how do you use technology to get a better idea of how your pitchers are doing, how this actually I should go back and say how your throws are doing and how can that assist in overall health, like by reading that data? Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're we definitely use quite a bit of technology. Um, like we've got Rapsodo, we use slow motion video. Um, you know, we've got cameras that can shoot incredibly high frame rate so that we can, you know, see basically the guy's fingertips at ball release when we're doing pitch design stuff. Um, you know, we use all of that, um, but we actually use it quite sparingly. Um, don't use it with every single guy. Um, so it really depends on the tech and what it's designed to do and the relative skill of the player. Um, you know, I just got my Rapsodo unit this year, and so it's been a big learning curve for me getting you know, used to how to use the technology, how to implement it in a team setting and do all that. There's all kinds of challenges that I didn't expect with it. But the one thing that I've come to realize very quickly is that my guys that are, you know, 15, 16 years old that, you know, struggle with command and or just like don't know how to throw with intent yet, I'm going to do them way more harm than good by hooking them up to that pitching monitor, giving them all these advanced metrics that really like for them, aren't important right now. They just need to learn how to throw. And, you know, that's where like, once again, like at first I thought, okay, we're going to use this with every single guy, every single bullpen that we throw. Uh, that's definitely not the case. Like we pull that out, you know, maybe two to three times a week right now. And we're training six, seven days out of the, out of the week. So um, it, it depends on who we're using it with. Um, but things like radar, um, we use that in pretty much every single session. Um, you know, when the radar guns out, where it's not always out because we're trying to throw as hard as we can. Sometimes we're using that radar as a tool to actually have guys throw 
sub maximal intent. So if we know that a guy's max fastball is just to make the math easy, say my guy can throw hundred miles an hour and we want him to sit at 80%, we're going to try and see 80 mile an hour fastballs on the gun that day. Although that's not necessarily, you know, perceived effort and what that means definitively, but it's just another tool that we can use to monitor how hard a guy's throwing, how hard he's exerting himself. Um, you know, when it comes to pitch design and using our high frame rate camera, um, that's going to be something that, you know, like the rap soda, we only use, or we use it in conjunction with rap soda. We only use that with our higher skilled guys. So like some of the pro guys that come in here or college players, um, guys that have really good feel have already developed an arsenal or working on developing out or building out an arsenal that's going to work for them. Um, that's typically not something that we'll do with, you know, a kid that's in grade nine or grade 10. Um, yeah, because I guess once again, those guys just need to learn how to throw. Yeah, there's one one point you made, you know, early just then was talking about intent. And I think if there's one message you can probably help our athletes take away today, and I think it's something that Noah and I have, I don't want to say struggled with, but it's a message we're really trying to get across to our throwers, especially the kids that come into the pitching program, is throwing the baseball with intent. Can you talk about that just a little bit, what that means? Yeah, I think one of the biggest things I notice, you know, even with guys that are like 18, you getting ready to go to school, they never really learned how to throw hard. Um, and I find this like, you know, when we work with some of our 10 U teams, these are pitchers that are learning to pitch for the first time, you know, they're in here working with us, you know, as Vila pitching, but then they're also in here with their team practices. The emphasis at that 10 U age group is throwing strikes because, you know, as everyone knows, like, it's, it's a walk fest, those first two to three months of season. And even throughout that first year of pitching, it's walk, walk, walk. And the kids that pitch are the ones that can put the ball in the strike zone and play a game of baseball. But the problem is with that, the kids that are pumping strikes in there, they're just trying to place balls in the zone. They're not really learning how to throw with intent. And so in that really like developmental window, like when kids are 10 to 13 years old, that's where like they're learning how to move for the rest of their life. If you don't teach a kid how to throw hard in that window, in that frame, you kind of miss, you miss your mark. And it's really hard to teach intent later on in life. Um, you know, you, you need to teach that early. And so I, when I'm working with like young kids, I often don't even put a strike zone up. I don't give them a target to throw at because I don't care where the ball goes. I want them to throw it hard. Um, you know, there, there's definitely a time, like as we get closer to season, okay, yes, you know, we're not going to, roll a kid out there and have him walk the yard and walk 10 runs in. But at the same time, you know, let him walk the bases loaded and then, you know, try and work out of it, throw the ball hard, you know, um, you know, hope they don't hit it or hope that it goes somewhere near the strike zone. Um, you know, in those young ages, um, you, you can develop command and control once you've established intent, but without establishing intent young, it's going to be really difficult to establish that later on in that, that player's career. Um, and some guys just never, never get that. And those are your guys that are stuck at like 82 miles an hour, you know, heading into college and, you know, they wonder why, you know, they're, they're not getting the offers that they they're looking for. Yeah, definitely. It, it really, it really goes to show. I mean, we talk about it all the time throwing with intent and the great point made there was just getting kids to throw the ball at like, again, getting that arm going, getting that arm speed up and getting that arm in a good position. And then, Again, when they turn 15, 16 years old, they've already they already understand what their how their arm should be moving, and now it's just about refining everything else so that we can take it to the next level, right? Um, we did actually have a couple of questions for you from um, uh, 
One of them was um, from Joey. So Joey asked, uh, high kick to increase velocity or arm rotation? I'm not sure what the context of that is, but give it I'm a I'm sorry, I missed, uh, I missed the first part of that. Can you repeat the question? So it said, uh, would you go with a uh, high leg kick to increase release velocity or arm rotation? I'm not sure what it is. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm going to try and break this into two parts. Um, leg kick has almost nothing to do with throwing velocity. Um, you, you see guys that can throw, you know, mid 90s out of a slide step um you know upper 90s out of a slide step it's all about how do you load your pelvis and that's ultimately you know what you're doing with a leg kick guys like throwing with a leg kick relative to a slide step because it makes it a lot easier to rotate your pelvis into your back hip um basically what you're trying to do is like firm up that back leg and i'm actually going to stand up for this like we're trying to keep this hip like as neutral and as like closed or sorry like as firm as possible and as that leg's lifting up you're kind of turning your whole pelvis like this whole kind of complex into that backside and you're loading. So that's what that leg kick really does for you. The height of the leg kick plays almost zero role in that. It's just a lot more difficult to do when you're sliding. Um, so just kind of like loading that back hip up out of the slide step, you know, you can, you can throw just as hard. It's so the height of your leg kick, just to kind of come back to the question, has next to nothing to do with your ability to throw hard. It's how do you load that back hip? And that, that's kind of the bigger the bigger picture there. Um, what was this, the second part of that question? Uh, he just, uh, I guess it was a comparison question. So high leg kick to increase release velocity or arm rotation? What, I guess it's a focus question. Which one should be focused? Mm, okay. Um, I, I would focus on the arm, um, you know, kind of coming back to what I talked about before arm passes like that, that that's the throw, you know, your lower body's not throwing the ball, you're throwing the ball with your arm. Um, yeah, your lower body's going to help you, you know, create force and, you know, put some uh, transfer that energy into your arm. But at the same time, if that arm's not working efficiently, you know, you can have all the power from your lower half in the world, but if there's no link, you know, if there's no transfer between lower body power and efficiency in the upper half then you're just never going to throw with significant velocity. So I would say arm over lower body in general. And uh, just another question we had here. So is there any truth to the argument that kids shouldn't be throwing junk, I assume breaking balls, um, until they're 14 to 16 or older? Um, yes and no, but I would say age plays almost no role in that. Um, there's actually a really good podcast um, that I listened to on this. And it basically, it's a full hour long podcast that dives directly into this issue. Um, it's Christian Wonders from Cressy Sports Performance. Um, he was their um, pitching director. He's since accepted a role in professional baseball. And, um, you know, he's talking with Eric Cressy, who's a huge name um, in the strength and conditioning side of things um, in baseball specifically. And, you know, I was listening to this podcast and it, it kind of married up a lot with my whole philosophy on it. Uh, ultimately like what they talked about was can that kid throw a really good fastball and can that kid, you know, repeat his delivery. If you can say yes to both of those, then go ahead and start teaching them the fundamentals of throwing a curveball. But prior to using that curveball in game or in any kind of competitive setting, you know, so even a bullpen, can they create some topspin on the ball during catch play, um, throwing it at very sub-maximal intent. Once they can spin that ball, then, okay, start using it 
with a little bit more intent and then progressively move them up to the mound. Um, I get tons of kids that are 17, 18 years old that throw an absolutely garbage fastball. So at the same time, you know, do they, do I think that they need to be, you know, throwing something else other than that fastball? Yes. hundred percent. So there is kind of like an age and like competitiveness aspect to it. I would say once kids are in high school, so like 14, 15 years old, yeah, regardless of skill and their ability to throw the fastball, they're going to need something else that they can compete with. Um, so we want to start introducing, you know, a breaking pitch, you know, definitely I think everyone should learn how to throw a change up. Um, at, yeah, at least early, I could never throw a change up. It was just a pitch I couldn't feel. So I moved to a splitter, but, um, that was late. Um, so yeah, I would say like 14, 15, that's kind of like your cutoff, like where I think everyone should learn to try and throw it. But prior to that, I would say only for guys that can spin a really good fastball and put some backspin on it. Definitely repeat their delivery. Yeah. Um, definitely. I, I tend to agree with everything you just said there in terms of that. And it's, it's a good explanation. Again, sometimes, uh, hearing it from a different source always helps. So, uh, yeah, for sure. You, you hear the same voice all the time, you know, kind of like listening to dad, uh, you know, who's my coach for a long time, kind of just go, uh, you go blind to it for a little while, even though the message is the same, but just hearing it from another source is always nice. Well, one of those big keys was, is repeatable, right? I mean, that's, I think that's the key, right? Is the repeatable delivery. If a kid shows that ability and that consistency to throw the ball the same way each time that shows that they had some control of their body. We talked about core strength earlier and things like that, right? All those yep. cues that let you know that they're ready for that, for that next, you know, component of, of pitching. Yeah. And you know, like, can you throw the ball hard in around the strike zone? Yes. Okay. Let's, let's start, you know, being competitive in other ways and, you know, finding ways to differentiate yourself. So, you know, if that's a breaking pitch, then we'll, we'll move that direction hundred percent. So another question. Um, so talk again, going back to the uh, discussion we just had a little bit earlier about um, pitch velocity for, our younger guys, and I guess this is in relation to intent to throw. Um, for an 11 year old, is it best to work at getting the ball in the strike zone and second part should be speed or vice versa? I'm talking about a mosquito age kid. So 11 to, I guess, 10, 11, 12 year olds. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think we, we address that almost specifically. I would say developing intent and learning how to throw hard. It doesn't necessarily mean, you know, getting that 11 year kid to throw 60 miles an hour. It just means relative to his ability, can he throw, can he throw with some intent? Can he, you know, throw that ball harder on command? Um, that That's really what I mean, like in developing intent. It's not necessarily, you know, developing power arms at a young age, just can they dig deep and find some extra miles an hour? If yes, then, you know, we've developed some intent and some awareness of intent. Um, so yeah, you know, develop intent first and then worry about the strike zone later. Um, same time, yeah, we want to teach kids how to throw strikes early too. So there, there's a there's a happy medium. It's a balancing act for sure. Definitely. Yeah, and we, we we talk about that a little bit with with some of the stuff, especially with an indoor facility, right? Like there is a unique difference between training and practice, right? Like, and that almost falls into that same thing. When you're learning how to throw the ball hard and throw with intent, I mean that is a that is more of a training thing, we'll say, right? Where you're learning how to physically use and develop your body versus, you know, dialing that back in and throwing strikes, right? Like that is a, that falls under more of the practice criteria, we'll say under the traditional methods that people would understand, right? Yeah, for sure. And I think that's a really good differentiation, like training versus practice. In training, like you're trying to strip everything down, like 
you know, you're doing a remodel on a house, you're going to rip it down to the studs and start over. Um, you know, whereas in practice, you know, you're kind of putting the finishing touches on and, you know, you know, laying the baseboards and doing all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, I would agree hundred percent. So yeah, just before we wrap up here, um, I know that, uh, on Velo pitching, uh, you guys have a ton of great resources, especially now with your quarantine series, uh, not only on Velo pitching, but play ball Academy. Um, so it, we gave Trevor the opportunity um, yesterday to kind of plug what you guys have going on. So if you want to just touch on uh, some of the videos that you recently posted and maybe something new that's come out over the last 24 hours that our viewers might not be aware of. Yeah, it sounds like uh, you've been kind of keeping in touch with what I've been doing here. But um, yeah, so, you know, for you guys that are watching um, as a facility, Playball Academy. So um, Velo Pitching being part of that, Trevor, who was on yesterday and some of our other instructors, um, I'm going to be uploading a video very shortly, actually, that Trevor put together earlier today. Um, but each day, you know, as we're in shutdown, as you know, you guys are as well, we're trying to release some content, um, you know, very simple drills that um, guys, girls, um, anyone can do on their own time um, with very minimal equipment. So typically with most of the drills we're putting out, um, all you need is uh, a baseball, um, softball, tennis ball, um, some of them even like ping pong balls, just some cylindrical or sorry round object um, spherical object um, that you can throw um, or you know throw a wall um, and yeah we're just trying to give people stuff that you can do on their own time at home minimal equipment um, so that's our quarantine drill series um, like i said there's another video coming out pretty much right after we get off this call i'm going to upload it um, so you can stay tuned to our instagram and facebook for that um, which is just playball academy canada um, and then also this morning, um, as Velo Pitching, we released some free resources um, for our athletes or really anyone who wants to access them. Um, some things that you can use uh, to kind of stay in maintenance mode over this period of time where you might not have access to a gym or, you know, to your plyos and your regular facility with your coach. Um, so on there, we put up a um, four week uh, throwing program just kind of like a maintenance program, uh, keep guys on the mound. I'm not sure what the weather's like out your way. Um, it's been okay here. It's been like two or three degrees and bright and sunny, but we got dumped with snow today. Um, so guys can throw outside, um, you know, so there's, there's a nice throwing program that guys can use. Uh, we put out a four week sprint program because you don't really need any equipment for that. You can either go up to a track or, you know, run out uh, on your street as long as there's no, not too much traffic. Um, and then we're also going to be putting up uh, some other tools like a bullpen uh, progression tool for guys to build the season with. Um, what else? I think there's one more thing. Oh, and then we also opened up our drill videos, which we typically reserve just for our athletes. But since no one can be in here, um, we've opened them up to everybody. So um, we're also going to be uploading uploading new stuff you know, over the coming weeks because we got lots of time to do it and we want to keep people engaged. So if uh, you would like to access that, you can visit our Instagram page. The link's in our bio. Um, maybe if you want, I can send you guys the direct link as well. And if you want to post it up, uh, feel free. Um, but yeah, the, the Instagram bio is uh, it's at Velo Pitching. Really simple. You can hit the link there and then you just sign up and you gain access to all that stuff for free. Perfect. I'm just adding that to the comments there now. So guys, um, anybody watching this on replay, again, it's posted in the comments on Instagram, it's at Velo Pitching, and then Instagram for Playball Academy, it's at Playball Academy Canada. I think I've got that one correct. Guest appearance here. Yeah, guest appearances. That's my cue, guys. I've actually got to jump off, but uh, Tyler, yeah, appreciate no it again as always.
Yeah, no problem, guys. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity and, uh, you know, you give me your time. Awesome. Cheers. So thanks again, right, Ty, and uh, we'll definitely be in touch. So uh, thanks again for everybody that uh, watched today and be sure to follow Velo Pitching and Playball Academy Canada on Instagram and take advantage of all those free resources, guys. So thanks again, Ty. All right, no problem, guys. Thanks for having me. No Cheers, problem. Thanks. Have a good day. All right, take it easy. Thanks. See ya.